Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. If you have specific questions or concerns, we encourage you to consult a health professional in your local area. From Changelog Media, this is Brain Science, a podcast for the curious. We're exploring the inner workings of the human brain to understand behavior change, habit formation, mental health, and what it means to be human. It's brain science applied, not just how does the brain work, but how do we apply what we know about the brain to transform our lives? I'm Adam Stachowiak. And I'm Dr. Marielle Reese. I just think how parenting some years ago used to be very rooted in shame and how often parents would say, like, shame on you. You know better. Yes. Yeah. Right. You know better than that. Like, how dare you? I, and let me translate. What the heck is wrong with you that you would do that? Oh, man, that's 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 hurtful right there. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think that that's a deep response from a parent because that's layered in like their own issues as well as the child's performance and their expectation of that child's performance and potentially even how many times that child may have done that thing correctly and then now they're doing it incorrectly for whatever reason gosh my kids kids are so complex but yes shame is uh and it kind of sticks with you too like i'm 40 years old now and i start to do a lot of introspectiveness like the last several years, it's a thing that you do with that. Maybe you could even verify this with the brain. Like at, at a certain point in your life, you begin to become uh, introspective about who you are and why you are. Well, and I, I would think say it's ideally. around this time frame. <laughs> ideally. <laughs> ideally. You right, do. Right. And so, yeah, but you, so you reflect back. Well, I start to think of like what happened earlier in my life that I am now a certain way because of those things. And it may be shameful things where a parent is projecting onto you you should have done you knew better than this how dare you shame on you for doing these things and i wonder how many things that we have wrong today in our lives are conditioned or bad habits or responses that are emotional trauma deep within that we can either blame the age ago thing or not but i don't know you you tell me no, I think there's so Eric Erickson came up with um, the sort of theories of development and that there's different sort of stages we go through. And yeah, I mean, this middle age season is sort of going, let me look back on my life. Am I doing something meaningful? Do I like what I've cultivated? You know, this is why people change jobs yeah. <laughs> a lot around this time because they're like, wow that doesn't fit in the same way or it doesn't hold the same sort of meaning for me that it once upon a time did. True that. That's for sure. Yeah. There's lots of stuff that, that you're like, that meant a lot to me 10 years ago today. Yeah. Not so much. And I, and I didn't really consider this until just now, literally just now, but I feel like, and, and hopefully I have a little bit more time than this, but I feel like right now uh, to use a football term, I'm at the 50 yard line of life. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. 80 years old is a pretty good age to live to. I might go past that, but a common age is 70 to 80, depending upon your yeah. health and how you're taking care of yourself. And, you know, now is a time to change if I'm on a bad direction health wise to begin or redirect a, a trajectory of good health 
to get to that that mile marker. But it's like a this is like a milestone year for many people. Many people celebrate their fortieth, you know, birthday for because it's it's like this fifty mile marker or fifty yard line or whatever right. it might be, yeah. and it's like a halfway point. Yeah. Well, I think it makes you look back and then sort of reallocate what direction you want to head as based on that. Mm -hmm. You know, do you like what you've cultivated in the first 40, in the first half? And do you want more of that? Or do you want to, you know, redefine what that looks like? Yeah, that's 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 good stuff there. So when we start to dig into this aspect of shame, it's different than guilt. Yeah. But let's let's kind of break down this concept of shame and what it really is. You know, shame is a really interesting, uh, it's an emotion, but I would offer it's really an experience because shame as an emotion is so all-encompassing. For lack of a better way to say it, shame is this emotional experience of inadequacy. Like nothing I do will ever be enough. Otherwise, it's sort of like the hustle of not enough. I'm, I, I didn't meet an expectation. I could have done more. Um, and really this sense of inherent defect, like irreparable. So not only am I not enough, but there's no way for me to span that gap to be enough. Like you're broken. Yeah. Can't be fixed. Yeah. Not not wanted, discarded. Yeah, it's really – so <laughs> I there's pictures that I have of different things over the course of my life. And I remember back when the anti-smoking campaigns were really big. Oh, yeah. There was this one that was of a woman with dark hair. And the caption on it <clears throat> read, what if what happened on the inside happened on the outside? Oh, and yeah. so her face was covered in tar and like her shoulders. And there was only some visible of the whites of her eyes and whatnot. Yeah. And that's the picture I get for shame. Okay. Because who, if they are appearing somewhat dirty, is going to come out and hang out with other people? Yeah. Like the leper or the lame. The, yeah, it's, they're not of everyone else. And so they should just not be a part because they don't look the part. They don't act the part. They they are definitely you know, visibly have something not like everyone else. Yeah. So it's interesting because you're getting at – the way in which shame has this other relational component to it mm -hmm. of disconnection. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true because uh, it even happens in, in children with like time out. You know, like mm -hmm. you are – you have to go over there. You're not allowed in the, the tribe anymore temporarily. This is a mm -hmm. child's mind thinking this because they're not fully cooked as you say. You know, the, yes. It's a shame that might come with it. Like you did this bad thing. You go over there. And it's a shameful kind of thing. That's why you have to use timeouts very specifically if you use them, you know, and with a purpose. You have to think like, what am I trying to do with this uh, you know, this, this discipline? Right. So whether the rejection is literal, like it right. comes from someone else or it comes from internally you rejecting you in this way, you're set apart in an irreparable sort of way. Right. So now you're ironically more threatened. Like one clinician talked about this experientially and saying, you know, shame once upon a time was far more evolutionarily adaptive because shame was a signal to someone when they weren't with their tribe, they were flying solo. 
So it was dangerous. Like, can you imagine being in the jungle or some remote plant and it's just you? Yeah. It's a bad place to be. It is. And so even coming back to what we talked about at the initial episode, the fundamentals of being human, it involves like we are tribal by nature. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A social species. Yeah. And to not be a part of that tribe is, uh, it's multi-layer, but it's very hurtful because you want to be with your group. You want to be protected. You want to be sheltered, et cetera. And the shame being a signal of that not being a fact anymore, or even if it's just temporary, is is got to be gut-wrenching. Yeah. So shame is this response to threat. It's actually a stress response. Okay. I have an awareness that there is some threat, and now I need to react to it mm. in some form or fashion. A stress response. Yeah. So it sets off this cascade of events in our brain around how do I manage a perceived threat. And remember, you know, threats don't have to be legitimate for our brain to still run the play. Yeah. That's the truth too. Yeah. <laughs> right. Just because you had an interaction with somebody, it doesn't mean that they're a lion, tiger, or bear, but your brain doesn't know that. Right. And your brain is still going to run the same play of like, oh, my Lord, like there's danger ahead. And now I need to try to figure out some way to recover, except, uh-oh, there isn't a way to recover because I'm set apart. I'm hanging out all by myself and I just have to live in this space of helplessness. How closely is shame connected to this idea of imposter syndrome then? Is it, are they kind of one-to-one or are they just sort of like cousins or siblings? Interesting question. I think imposter syndrome really is a sort of consequence or way of reframing shame because it's rooted in this not enough. Like I can't hold on to my awards, achievements, and efforts. I feel like no matter what initials are behind my name, what successes have I, I've I've cultivated, like literally, legitimately, they are insufficient. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I could say, well, I'm really not that accomplished because there's other doctors out there who've done way more than I have or they've specialized in X, Y, or Z that I haven't. So I suck. So you're That's a, what shame does. You're a practicing clinical psychologist, right? That's, that's what yeah. you do daily. Yes. That means you see patients, you, you've done it for many years now. So what is the percentage of people who who share, you know, or come into a clinical situation with you and, and seek advice that's kind of rooted primarily in this shame slash imposter syndrome. Yeah, well, a lot because <laughs> I can't say percentage-wise because at some way, at some point, it always gets tethered in. Yeah. I mean, I can talk more specifically. Yeah, yeah. Like um, one of the interesting things with shame is that shame prompts this sort of hiding response, and we'll talk about this in a little bit. But if I'm thinking of shame as a response to threat, generally speaking, that means I'm going to be activated for fight, flight, or freeze. Right. So shame is going to prompt hiding. And if we feel like an imposter, what are we kind of doing? Hiding. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a way that if we're not connected that and nobody really knows us, I can continue to feel as though people don't really know me and like if they really saw me if I was really visible like what was going on inside like oh my word if my thoughts were made public Mm -hmm. yeah 
that scary. What you made me think of there when you described this was, you know, this aspect of hiding. Um, I'm wondering if as part of this, we could talk about telltale signs that you're in these moments. Because sometimes it's very top of mind awareness that you are very mindfulness of of your shame or of your imposter syndrome. And some may be just in this, in that lull, in these ways and not really thinking they're in a shameful situation. They are hiding. So I'm just wondering if there's like telltale signs that say you are in shame or you are in an imposter syndrome kind of posture and then potentially even ways to get out of or to remedy the shame. Well, so I'm super thankful for researchers who've looked at this more in depth. And if you haven't heard of her, go look her up. But Brené Brown, um, she was out of the University of Houston um, and a social worker who did tons of research as it relates to shame, vulnerability, and connection. And so one of the things um, when we look at research, there's two variants that people run. And one is what we call quantitative research. So I can measure it sort of I'm looking at specific numbers and I assign a value to different constructs. And then I measure that within or um, in different groups. And then there's what we call qualitative research. So qualitative isn't necessarily I'm measuring a specific uh, – I'm giving a, a specific amount or value to something, but rather – she, in Brené's work, she did uh, this with interviews. So she looked at this aspect of vulnerability and heard, asked the same questions to hundreds of people over and over again and then went through all of these along with um, other researchers to extrapolate what are the common themes that are talked about when it comes to shame. And, you know, what she found was really this sense of one, we all face this because vulnerability is a part of shame. And that makes sense, right? If I'm talking about shame as a response to threat, right? then if I am aware of my vulnerability, it's easy for me to be activated and then respond with fight, flight, or freeze. So she talks about shame as a storm. She says you have to be able to, to name it. That's one of the key things is recognizing Shame. And you might feel like it, like cognitively, it's this inner loop. So put, you know, a song on repeat over and over and over again. It might feel like um, really the sense of anger, or I, I refer to it as like the inner critic. That's the internal dialogue you hear of like, what's wrong with you? How stupid could you be? I mean, my goodness. Like, so. It perpetuates this notion of not enough. And the other feeling that might come with it is helpless. Yeah. Right? I'm damned if I do. I'm damned if I don't. Like, smart people just lay down and try not to move. So why show up? Why try? Yeah. Right. So now imagine that literally I'm spiraling down <laughs> more into my brainstem. So I, I actually lose more of the cognitive function of my neocortex. Like – to be able to think like a human, I end up thinking much more like a lizard, like we've talked about reptiles or mammals. Like I'm literally caught in this emotional storm and I feel like I, I can't get out. That's a tough place to be in too. That's why I think it's, finding, you know, the name of the team seems to keep coming up every time we have some sort of conversation. I, I feel like naming something and giving – uh, some sort of definition to this thing that we keep feeling and naming things seems to be key 
because it gives you an understanding of it. Once you have an understanding of it, awareness, we've, we've said this before that this is really a key aspect to, um, to any sort of remedy is, is awareness of and defining what it is. Right. So one of my favorite examples of this, Brenna Brown talks about this. I forget where she's had written a number of books. She's got her TED talks and more, but she describes this scenario wherein uh, the pickup line at school. And so especially if you're a mom and have ever hung out in the pickup line, it's an experience, <laughs> but she, or dad, um, yeah, or, <laughs> you just yes. saved me. I'm just kidding. <laughs> hey, um, just being funny. So, she tells the story of another woman coming to her and asking her where she had been. And she had, you know, at that time been away for a speaking engagement of this, that, or the other. And she didn't share this with the other woman. She just said, you know, I was away. And and Brenny Brown's living in Texas at this time, so I have to give other relevant contextual factors. But she said, well, who – this other mom said, well, who watched your kids while you were away? And um, she's like, well, their dad did. And then, you know, grandparents helped and stuff like that. And the woman's response to her was – Oh, bless your heart. And if you live in the South, bless your heart doesn't really mean bless your heart. It's this way of like, you know, oh, goodness, like, good try, but not enough. Like, eh, you totally sucked. You failed. Right. And so Brené Brown in feeling this was like literally spinning of going, what kind of mom are you to leave your kids and how di- – Literally, how funny. How dare you leave your kids with their dad for a week, right? And so the reaction is to sort of fight, flight, or freeze, right? So she could stand up or she could hide out or she could just freeze. And so her mantra to this is don't puff up, don't shrink down, just stand on your sacred ground. So don't fight back, don't retreat in hiding, and don't freeze, but Stand in what's true for you. And so in this instance, I just find it so humorous. But she ended up, she's like, said the woman, like, good to see you, rolls up the window. And she's like, the line's moving, you know. And literally, the line was not moving. But she moved, like, maybe six inches forward. But she was trying so hard to hold on to emotion, this huge, big emotion. And so she says, shame is the most powerful master emotion. It is the fear that we're not good enough. Wow. Yeah. This this idea of standing on your sacred ground is interesting because it reminds me of this idea that we've talked about as well as like, what are you optimizing for? We talked about it in goal setting, you know, and so Brené going out on her mission, you know, in her career, leaving her children with a capable father is not a bad thing. Uh, and she's optimizing for the, the career she's trying to build while cultivating a great family life. And it's this idea of like being grounded and knowing what we're optimizing for. I feel like if we are able to be more aware of what we're optimizing for, it's easier for us to be less shamed. I'm sure it's going to happen. But when it comes around, we understand what ground to stand on. Yes. Yeah. I once heard it said with a speaker and I thought it just resonated with me at that time. And they they said, you know, a long time ago, I stopped trying to keep up with the Joneses because I realized every night when I went to bed – when I woke up the next day, someone moved the line. Oh, yeah. Every <laughs> every day it, it moves, especially like in this tech world that we we kind of camp out. And I know our audience has sort of transcended the 
typical change log. And I don't mean that in a negative way, y'all. Typical, but like we, we, we have cultivated a network of podcasts that sort of focus on software developers. But this show is sort of transcending that. But, you know, every day in the tech world, the, the line has moved. No single day does technology not progress. That's the name of the game. It's meant to be progressive. And right. every day the line moves. And so every day people in software, whether you're a software developer, quality assurance, you know, a marketing manager, a product manager, a product development manager, engineering manager, whatever, everyone's getting their line moved every single day. Yes. And so it is exhausting. Yes. And, and that, I mean, this is really the epitome of that hustle. Yeah. So when information is moving at that speed, you you just, it literally is like a gerbil on a wheel. Wake up and run it, run it, run it, run it, run it. And that's that's not how we're designed. We're, we're not designed in the same way and there aren't two the same. So why would I say that somebody else needs to do what I do because I do that or that then I need to do what someone else does because they do that? If we're looking at the world in terms of, you know, a harmony of working together, because, right, if we're a social species, ideally in a tribe, I don't want everybody to have the same skill. Yeah. That's going to put us at risk, too. Yeah. So, I mean, I want people to 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 reflect on sort of like what aligns with them. Like, do they want to be doing that work? And and some of these things I say would be like phasic in sort of life stages and going, you know, maybe in one life stage, I'm optimizing for one thing. Like, I'm really trying to get this degree so that I can have this other career or I'm really trying to, you know, be at home with my kids, you know, these five years, 12 years, 18 years, whatever it might be, because that's what really fits with the internal compass for you. Yeah. At what point does the concept of contentment come in? So if we're not enough and we're telling ourselves or the world's telling ourselves that we're not enough and we, you know, this aspect of keeping up with the Joneses is a well-known euphemism for just not keeping up, not enough. You know, contentment is, it seems like the the silver bullet to solving this problem. Like, just be content, right? Is Is that... Also shameful to say, just be content with what you have. You have so much. You have, you're so blessed. You're so well taken care of. You're so well off, whatever the, you know, the phrase may be. I have to laugh because part of me thinks like that what you're saying is like, shame on you for right. not being content. Right. <laughs> exactly. And you might even tell yourself that. Right. What's wrong with you that you want more? Like, come on, just get with it. It, it also reminds me of like this layered cake. You know, I, I asked you before about something and, and it was like, it's not just that. It's it's this and, and this other thing, too. Is it shame, imposter syndrome, contentment, you know, keeping up with the Joneses, not being part of the tri tribe, being ostracized. These are all, you know, systematic, multi-layered var variations of interpersonal relationships and Shame being this sort of key factor to say you're not in a, in a in a place where you should be. You're being ostracized, and now you're in a defensive mode, and and uh, and all that. But then contentment is where does it where does it fit in? So I uh, I would offer a different word. Okay, that it's not optimizing or sort of looking for contentment, but rather honesty. Okay. Can you look in the mirror and recognize like what fits for you? And like we've talked about that superpower of choice. Yeah. Like what am I choosing? 
And so is it important to me? Because look, we can't have our cake and eat it too. <laughs> like we all have to make choices and there's a, a domino effect of ramifications from those choices. That's not good or bad, right or wrong. Those just are sequelae. So in light of that, would I want something different? Mm. Or does it resonate with me? Is is this being honest? And this is why like talking about vulnerability, to some degree, it's vulnerable to show up. Like I, I've talked about this or used this parallel in other episodes, but thinking about like kids doing art projects. So here's a template and this is what you're supposed to create. Like who in the class creates the same one? Never. It's never the same. They're always unique. Yeah. They're always different. Some are bad. Some are good. Some are, you know, very close to the example given. Right. And and so this sense of honesty is really like I'm going to stand in the mirror and look at, at myself and say, this is who I am. And like, just because, look, you're an N of one. In research, we use N meaning like the number of subjects. Yeah. Like there's no other Adam there's no other Marielle. There's no other Katie, Joe, Susie, Marlene. You name it. There, it's even if people have the same names, like you're the only one. And so I want to cultivate this sense of respect and honesty and authenticity to practice showing up. This seems to all root back to identity, though. So I, if, if I look in the mirror and I don't know who I am, how can I, you know, how can my my reasoning for this honesty come to a conclusion that reflects who I am if I don't know who I am. You know, so sure. is a is a practice part of this to sort of like have an understanding of your identity. Who who are you? And so sure. if you know who you are, you know what you should do. Yeah. But think about it like clothes that fit, right? Clothes are something you wear. They're something you put on. It's an external construct designed to Fit and think about the difference between something you buy at a general store versus something that's tailor made. Mm. If it's tailored to you, how does it fit? Perfectly. Yeah, far better. And and so you do have to have some sense, but it's really this sort of matching up. Think of the little kids match game. <laughs> what's on the inside and what's on the outside go together. So if I'm saying that what somebody else is optimizing for or because somebody has done more or different than I, then that needs to fit me is really, I mean, I'm sort of the first to to be mean to myself. Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, I'm, I'm my worst critic and, yeah. uh, and I'm terrible to myself sometimes. My, I've heard you speak of this concept, inner referee. Can you talk about that? Sure. Well, my we, referee sucks, by the way. <laughs> I'm just well, doing it can... live, y'all. Just shaming <laughs> myself live. <laughs> the this inner referee. Imagine the, there's different ways to sort of talk about this, but recognizing we all have this sort of like little kid inside of us. Think about like what you would do impulsively, reflexively, without thinking. Like this is just like me being me. Yeah. You know, kids do it. Like they're not censoring. They're just much of the time living live. Yeah. They they sure but, are. they're never filtered. Right, but you can think of then this other side of you, like your inner critic or bully, that is sort of your self-regulatory aspect that says like, oh, no, you don't do that in this public place because that is out of bounds. So that part of you is trying to keep you in check all the time. So maybe a parent sort of voice that comes out more critical. 
But then this third aspect is this like inner referee that's like, time out, you two. Like, you don't have to vilify one another. Like, you get to be a kid and you get to be an adult. But, like, how can we negotiate? Mm-hmm. And the referee's like, hey, critic, like, totally out of bounds. I call foul. Like, you don't get to talk to yourself in that way. That's really belittling, demeaning, unkind, not compassionate. And, like, hey, little kid, you don't just get to have the cake and eat it too all the time. Like, that doesn't work well. So how can these aspects of me hang out with me, inside me? That's, that's a difficult thing. Yeah. You have to live with yeah. yourself. You said it before. You know, you have to live with your – you're the one who has to live with your own brain. Yeah. Your own choices. Yeah. Well, so the, the interesting caveat as we talk about shame is the way in which it does have ramifications with other people. Because if I'm feeling so marred, so, like, insufficient – I mean – Maybe a, a, a visualization of this might be like a homeless person trying to walk into a five-star restaurant that they would never feel accepted like they belonged to that community. And right. so they're probably not apt to try, even though they need food, that's not where they're going to go. And so we have to recognize one of the, the remedies for managing or navigating shame looks like connection. Because while you still feel like hiding, if you want to come back, and this is a testament to Brené Brown's work and research that says the remedy for shame is connection. Mm -mm. Like really finding compassion in another person and like I see you and that's okay. Like you're doing great. You don't need to do different or better or more. It also gives you feedback. Yeah. The self-regulating referee inside of us, that's a feedback loop as well, but sometimes isn't as kind or compassionate as we would desire. But, you know, the feedback loop of our tribe, our people connection is enough to remind us that our crazy isn't as crazy as we think it is. Right. Our imposter syndrome isn't true. Right. And they remind us that these truths you're thinking are true are actually false. Yeah, but it and and really with that 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 isn't an accurate image even though their your feeling side is going to say, "Yeah, that's real." And now you need to try to duck and cover and hide. Yeah. When you're in the presence of another, this is why sometimes people even talk about like confession, why confession is so powerful because you you stop hiding. Mm. I came out like think of the Wizard of Oz. Mhm. Right? Here it's this big booming voice, but behind it is just this itty bitty man. Yeah, behind a curtain. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, if you if you have nothing to hide from anymore, you don't have anything to hide from anyone else. And it's freeing. It's so freeing to not have secrets. Yeah. You know, there's 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 things that are private. Sure. And there's things that are secrets. Yes. Right? The secrets are the things that are generally shameful. Correct. And private things, just things that only I or my immediate family or people that are within a certain circle of trust can have access to. It's not so much that it's a secret. And there's a difference Correct. there. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and the, the interesting thing is recognizing when you do feel that way, like you're actually participating in your experience of disconnection. Because when I hide, I think that I'm too marred to be accepted, so I don't share. So 
I am disconnected and then I don't feel connected. Yeah. So recognizing, and it doesn't mean it's just anyone and everyone, like the guy sitting next to you on the bus or the ferry or on the airplane that you share it, but like, where is a relationship? Who is a person that you have built a relationship that you can say like, hey, this is where I am. Here's the struggle that I'm trying to navigate or here's where I feel like I really mucked it up. Like you you guys work on teams a lot in the tech industry, right? And so if you're like, dude, I, I, I wrote this code. I did this program. I, I was trying to work on this thing and like, I just can't figure it out or I just didn't show up mm-hmm. because I didn't want to be vulnerable to the criticism, condemnation or judgment of my team that's like, you didn't do it good enough. Yeah. Sometimes those walls are self-built. Sure. Sometimes they're also part of, part of culture, mm-hmm. you know, but this may be a subject matter for another show, but, you know, specifically with teams, there's often perceived walls built, uh, whether it's me building them of like, I can't show up today because I'm embarrassed that I didn't kill it this last day or two, or I didn't deliver on my KPIs or, you know, whatever it might've been, you know, like these, these constructs we put in our, in our path that essentially give us those feelings and to be able to be vulnerable, um, with a teammate and say, you know, here's where I'm struggling. That's the kind of culture um, that I would like to cultivate. One where you can say, you know what, I'm not showing up in these ways for these reasons. Can you help me? Or just not even needing the help because that's sometimes hard to ask for. But this uh, vulnerability of saying this is true for me today uh, and just be aware of it, that I'm I'm in this moment. And they may offer, oh, let me help you get through this or even just hearing you, just sometimes putting something out loud makes you participate in a choice of vulnerability rather than hiding and uh, the syndrome that sort of just encompasses us. Yeah. Well, you think about it, you hear that voice and it's, I mean, think of the way that you read a text or an email versus you hear the live response of another. Way different. It's different. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Often way different. (laughs) We hear it in a certain tone of voice or tenor that affects then how we feel and may prompt further hiding <laughs> right? or like, oh goodness, I really need to clarify this and come out of hiding or like, I want to fight back. I heard Jared say recently on a podcast we did with Jeff Myerson on software engineering daily, uh, Jared was, is aware of this. So he knows that, uh, in text, so like in Slack, he, uh, he's often just a brief person and he's aware that sometimes that can come off incorrectly. You know, just saying a one word response answer sometimes might be like, what, really? Why'd you say it like that? And and all they were just being brief because they're being efficient. And that's that's Jared. And so it was just funny how he, he had said it on this show it was like he's aware that this brief nature of our communication patterns can sometimes be mistaken as exactly what it's not, which is right. I didn't mean it the way you took it. And if you right. heard my true vocal tone, it wouldn't have sounded like that at all. Oh, wait, you mean you weren't actually threatening me That's right. when you said that? Exactly. Oh, because my brain told me that you were threatening, you were threatening me. me. Yeah, exactly. And so now I'm going to respond in a hostile manner and then I'll show you who's bigger. That's right. Right. Or I'll hide. <laughs> right. So I'll go to I my don't want to. I'll go to my place. Okay, I'm in my corner. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I want um, our listeners to get at this too from the the brain perspective and recognizing the the sort of underlying neuroscience of it. So first off, if you've heard of the ANS, so the autonomic nervous system. So this is the part of our body that um, regulates our internal organs without the need to think about it. And so there's two branches. So think wishbone now. There's the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems. Okay, so the sympathetic think sympathy, sympathetic nervous system is responsible for connecting the different organs of our bodies to our brain via our spinal cord, okay? So when we perceive danger, our sympathetic, sympathizes, system causes us to prepare for fight, flight, or freeze by increasing our heart rate as well as blood flow to our muscles, (laughs) Right? Because if I need to fight or flight, like I don't need it up in my brain. I need it in my legs, my arms. I need serious blood flow. Right. That. So, and then decreases blood flow to organs such as the skin. Where it's so not needed. I'm, yeah. Yeah. The sympathetic nervous system is excitatory. It's like, <gasps> hence anxiety. Like I need to rev up. I need to get going. Right. All right. So the parasympathetic nervous system is comprised of nerve fibers and cranial nerves. I don't want everybody to get lost in all these things. So I'm just going to move on to the primary part of this parasympathetic nervous system is the vagus nerve and the lumbar spinal nerves. Okay. So these two important structures increase our digestive secretions and reduce the heartbeat. So it's just the flip-flop, the opposite. That's parasympathetic. So think paralyzed So sympathetic sympathizes, parasympathetic is like, no, I'm going to sort of still it or decrease things. So when faced with shame, the brain reacts as if it were facing physical danger and activates the sympathetic nervous system, generating fight, flight, or freeze. Wow. Right. I mean, hence brainstem, like I'm figuring things out. I'm just going to live like a lizard or a reptile. And react. And yeah. Yeah, so I'm not thinking with the other aspects of my human brain, which allows more structures, more participation from more aspects of my brain to collaborate, to tell me any other information, to say, like, this isn't dangerous. He's not a bear. Right. And I think that's because the, you know, and and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I would assume it's because we have limited awareness and so when we're in a fight, flight, or freeze response scenario, we have to activate the things that are most crucial in those kinds of modes. And a full functioning, you know, rational brain may not be enough awareness focused brain power so that we can we can just run as fast as we possibly can away from the tiger. Right. Yet the, it's not really a tiger because our, our rational brain would have said, chill out. Okay, <laughs> chill out. That's not a tiger. Yeah. You don't need to run. And your heartbeat doesn't need to race from 59 to 92, you know, per minute. You know, it's... Right. So think of like our regular, like calm brain is able to see things that that lens of our brain sees things far more panoramic. That's right. The picture view versus tunnel vision of like far and narrow because I need to see a threat come in from far away so that I can fight, flight or freeze. It's interesting. There was a paper published back in 2014 in the Social Cognitive Affective Neuroscience. Again, say that five times fast. Um, The researchers carried out, have you heard of functional MRIs? I have, but I'm not familiar with what they are. So functional MRIs. 
Yeah, they, they're a way that we can get a picture of the brain in terms of what parts are getting activated oh, by different like blood colors. blood and stuff like that? Yeah, okay. yeah. So it's a, more of sort of seeing how systems work and how information travels as opposed to just like a picture that's like black and white. Right. Like MRI, CT. So the research team, when they did this study, found out – so they wanted to see how the brain reacted to the experience of shame. And so they found that there were certain structures within the brain that reacted to this shame stimuli, including the frontal lobe. Remember, our frontal lobe is executive function, so executive assistant, planning, organizing, speed of information processing, all sorts of things. It included the frontal lobe, which contains both the amygdala and this brain structure called the insula, Mm -hmm. I-N-S-U-L-A. Okay, so this insula was once believed to be implicated in emotional responses and part of the limbic system. The limbic system is our emotional reasoning sort of system. So this is, I'm sorry, the insula is in the cerebral cortex inside this little lateral groove. And so you'd have to like dive deep in the brain in order to get to this part of our brain. But It's like the this, epicenter area. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's now believed to be involved in awareness or like consciousness and plays an important role in other functions believed to be linked to emotion, including self-awareness and interpersonal experiences, Mm -hmm. like how I am with others, okay? And so the researchers have identified the insula as this sort of hub that regulates interactions between different brain regions that regulate the internal, so our brain's focus of our body and how we behave or how we regulate our behavior. So imagine this insula as sort of like the control tower. So we get shamed and our control tower's like, oh, all hands on deck. Like we need to fight for our life, fight, flight, or freeze or like play dead because there's a danger here. Mm -hmm. So remember when you're trying to reason out these emotions, you don't have access So it's like trying to have a really long conversation with the lizard about what they should do and how they shouldn't care that much. (laughs) It doesn't matter that they're that color right now. (laughs) It won't compute. Our brains don't know what to do with it. Well, why in the world is our brain designed like that? You know what I mean? Like why if, you know, if shame is such a uh, commonplace emotion, you know, why is our self-awareness and interpersonal experiences embedded in this insula, which seems to, I don't know, I I guess do the work at the time, but we just can't quite compute it the way it should be. Well, right. Like ideally our brains are supposed to work together. And so could you imagine a life devoid of emotion? Well, that wouldn't be, it'd be very difficult to do that. Almost you couldn't reason with the emotion even. It it would not be, it wouldn't be, it would sort of cancel itself out even, you know, because emotion is this, you know, self-awareness thing. And if you're not self-aware, is it real? Did it even happen? Is it? Well, does an emotion also drive connection? Like I can think of people, right, that like I want to move towards or I want to move away. So all of these things are intertwined, sort of like a ball of yarn in terms of, you know, being in relationship. I'm connected to others. I am designed to be attached, tethered to. My brain signals a danger when I'm not with a group of people or person you know, that I need to then react in a very survival-like way mm-hmm. to navigate this unpleasant, overwhelming, 
emotion. So this is why being able, going back to the name it to tame it, when you can recognize that you are in a shame storm, then you can go, who or what is going to help me navigate this? Yes. So what connection can I anchor to? Right. So if you think about this like a three-stepped process of going, identify the threat, identify the motion. And it might not just be shame. It might be helplessness. It might be, you know, a broader fear. It could be, you know, that inadequate, wrong. But then identify your tribe. Who can you connect with? Who's my tribe? Who's part? Who might be best able to understand why, like beneath the iceberg, why Mm -hmm. what someone else might only see as the tip of the iceberg, why this thing is actually relevant to me. And then three, you need that ref, that soothing system. So you need to upload a new soothing calming system imagine like you update software all the time you need a patch you need to patch <laughs> that brain with a new a new build that works that's optimized for this new construct that's that's so interesting and what i find super interesting is is the metaphors and direct connection between the way the brain works and the way we often uh you know build software whether it's a database graph or the way you know, large-scale systems are built. They're so, there's a lot of learning between how the human brain operates and the way in which software operates and how we build it and the way we fix it and et cetera. There's a lot of similarities. Well, I'm so glad you brought that up because we haven't talked about this as it's relevant to creativity. And if you can see that when we are trying to navigate shame this sense of inadequacy, do you think you're going to be more apt to be creative or less apt to be creative? I would guess less apt because I'm trying to focus on fight, flight, or freeze in those moments and I've got no time to be creative. I gotta be I gotta be the most necessary item possible to get through, right? Rather than be creative. Yeah. So let me tell you the dynamic. Adam, I need you to be remarkably creative so you can come up with the best, most user-friendly way for this to work, except you suck, you didn't do it enough, and you need to do better. (laughs) Don't ever tell me that again, Marielle. That is not nice. But I can understand how in that kind of moment. So if you're leading teams out there, don't lead with shame, okay? Well, it's really recognizing the way that you have to, right, if you can see, shift your your mind into seeing this through a a way of management, like I need to manage how I interface with other people, especially around creative endeavors, Yeah, that I need to be deliberate about identifying what they're doing well, and even saying, like, create clarity, like what you want them to approve upon. Like, if you get stuck in that hustle of not enough, welcome anxiety or depression or other mental health or stress in your life because you're just living in fight, flight, or freeze, and you're not going to have access really to do it as you are capable of doing it. You know, I'm so grateful for the work that Brené Brown has done because she's given us so much, so many words and ways of understanding this. And one of the quotes she gives in her book, um, uh daring greatly is i believe the one it's in is a quote by theodore roosevelt have you heard this the man in the arena no so when we're talking about managing shame really we're talking about managing vulnerability 
and trying to be creative, like being authentically ourselves. This is what he said in one of his speeches. He said, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. It's about showing up. Yeah. It's really just living who you are and knowing like you did what you could with what you had at the time you needed to do it and nobody's immune to shame but we have to look at how we can stand where we are in that sacred place all right thank you for tuning into this episode of brain science if you haven't yet please join us on this journey we have so much to explore subscribe to this podcast at changelaw.com slash brain science we're on apple Podcasts. we're on spotify we're on overcast and anywhere else you can get podcasts follow us on twitter we're at brain science fm you can also join our slack community it's free to join talk about all things brain science with me marielle and the rest of the community and if you have topics or suggestions for the show we want to hear them email us editors at changelaw.com Huge thanks to our partners, Fastly, Rollbar, and Linode. Also, thanks to Breakmaster Cylinder for making all of our beats. And last but not least, if you want to hear more shows like this, subscribe to our master feed to get all of our podcasts. Head to changelaw.com slash master or go into your podcast app and search for Changelaw Master. You'll find it. It's one feed to rule them all. Get all of our shows plus some extras that only hit the master feed. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you again soon. Yeah.